and welcome to the Cumberland Podcast. My name is Chris Fleming. I'm the Adult Ministries Coordinator for the Discipleship Ministry Team of the Ministry Council of the Cumberland Presbyterian Church. This is our 13th week that we've been doing this lectionary study, and so uh, because of the feedback that I've gotten that has been pretty good, uh, we're going to keep doing this. We're going to add to these podcasts some resources and maybe some coverage on events that are happening within the Cumberland Presbyterian Church. Uh, but for right now, we're doing the lectionary, and this week is going to be for March 31st, and that's going to be the fourth week of Lent, year C, and we'll get to that in a second. But before we get to that, I wanted to let you know about an event that's going to be happening this summer that you want to uh, might want to take note of so that you can send your kids. It's going to be CPYC. That's the Cumberland Presbyterian Youth Conference. It's going to be June 23rd through the 28th. Uh, Nathan Wheeler, who is our uh, Young adult, youth and young adult minister has been working really hard to put this together. Again, that's going to be at Bethel University from June 23rd to the 28th. Lots of things are planned. Uh, it's a good program. In fact, I am the uh, Committee on Ministry Chairperson for Covenant Presbytery, and we just took in a young lady. Named, her name is uh, Abby Miller, and she cites CPYC as a key in her understanding of the, of her future in serving God. And so she said when she went there, she connected with God in a in a way that made it clear that she was called to the ministry. So I'll uh, leave it with that. It's a good ministry. It's a good program. If you haven't been to CPYC in a while, uh, please think about sending your, your kids because fruit is being born through that ministry. You can go to cpcmc.org forward slash CPYC, and that'll get you to the sign up page. Again, that's cpcmc.org forward slash cpyc. All right, so we're going to jump in here and we're going to talk about the lectionary for uh, Lent 4, year C. The lectionary text today are Joshua chapter 5, verses 9 through 12. It's also going to be Psalm 32. And then the epistle passage is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16 through 21. And our gospel passage is Luke 15, 1 through 3 and then 11b through 32. Pretty much that's the uh, prodigal uh, son parable or story. Some of the unifying themes that tie this week together is, number one, God redeems and repurposes us to be witnesses of divine reconciliation offered in Jesus Christ. So we were once separated from God, but God redeems us. And then he gives us the challenge to go and be witnesses of the reconciliation that we've experienced in Jesus Christ. Uh, the second theme uh, is that there is renewal in Christ, right? So in Christ, when we're redeemed, we begin to see things through divine lenses. We understand God in a different way. We also see forgiveness, right? So that's one of the themes. This week, if you're preaching, you're going to find that the epistle lesson ties everything together real well this week. So my encouragement for you would be to Use the other three lessons this week, tie them into the epistle passage, and as you'll find out as we go further, it ties it in just spectacularly. But first, let's go with the Joshua passage. It's verses 9 through 12. It's a neat passage. The Israelites have uh, crossed over from, from the Jordan. They're into the promised land, and now what, right? And so we hear what God tells Joshua to do. In this passage, we see that the past is remembered, right, but a new future awaits. The past of Israel as slaves or the past where a whole generation died out before they came into the promised land, it's redeemed and it's remembered, but it's also reinterpreted. The Israelites no longer see themselves as victims, but instead they're champions moving into the promised land. 
If you're a church that practices a liturgical type of worship, you might have a time of confession and a corporate prayer confession. One of the prayers that I absolutely love, that I think you can use this week, and you can also use it as a base of a sermon if you wanted to, is from the Book of Common Worship. It goes like this. Gracious God, our sins are too heavy to carry, too real to hide, and too deep to undo. Forgive what our lips tremble to name, what our hearts can no longer bear, and what has become for us a consuming fire of judgment. Set us free from a past that we cannot change, Open to us a future in which can be changed, and grant us the grace to grow more and more in your likeness and image. Through Jesus Christ, the light of the world. Amen. And I think that's the purpose of this passage. The Israelites cannot change the past, but there is a future that can be changed, and it can be great, and it can be prosperous. And then grant us grace to become or to live out uh, the promises of God. Right. So that's what they're, they've crossed over. They're in the fringes of the promised land. Now go forth. That's a good That's a good prayer. So then if you look at the text directly, you can see that the ceremonies are still valued. Even though they're in a new era, the ceremonies of the past keep an identity for the Israelites. So it's circumcision and Passover. Before this passage starts, everyone is supposed to be circumcised if they haven't been circumcised. And then they eat the Passover. So the circumcision of the Passover, it identifies the Israelites as foreigners and aliens in this world, but it also reminds them that they're seeking a better country still. And the Passover defines them as still their dependences in God. They cannot do it themselves. The old defines the new. And this is how the Christian faith works. We don't simply stop uh, remembering our heritage. We still celebrate the Passover feast. In the Lord's Supper, we still celebrate the uh, circumcision with our baptism. It reminds us that we're always going to be foreigners and aliens in this world. It always reminds us that we're dependent upon God completely. So remember the ceremonies. Highlight that if you use this passage this week. Also in this passage, we find where God's sufficiency turns into abundance. So it's at this time that the text says that manna no longer came from heaven. So manna turned into tending uh, their own flock and their own livestock, right? So that means that they've, they've grown. They've, gone, they've gotten progressively more, not independent, but able to do more in light of God's promises. They were aliens and strangers in Egypt. They were slaves. They came out. Now they can claim something for their own. In some sense, this was the reclaiming of the Garden of Eden, whereas they were held in bondage in Egypt now they could subdue the land, multiply, if you will, and fill the earth. So God's sufficiently, sufficiency turns into abundance. Manna turned into tending their own land and their own livestock. And this also shows how sanctification works, right? So Jesus talks about the mustard seed that turns into a great tree, right? So Israel now can bear fruit. They've gone from being infants in the faith into now they're on the precipice of being fruit bearers. They'll be able to expand their kingdom, and they can be the light to the world. Which brings us to the next point in this passage. Uh, there is a forward progression in faith, in the faith life. There is sanctification. God was pushing the Israelites forward, right? God's plan of redemption was going forward. This was a time where the Israelites had overcome, but there were still things that needed to be accomplished. So they got to the edge of the promised land. 
They no longer had manna from heaven. Instead, they were now becoming their, their own society, and they were showing how that they could apprehend the promises of God and then turn it into fruit in the world. You might remember Paul saying, I'm confident of this, that God who began a good work in you will see it through to its completion. In other words, God has taken this infancy of faith that we have, and then he's turning us into mature believers for the purpose of us being um, light and darkness, being agents of transformation, which we'll read about more in the epistle passage. And that brings us to Psalm 32. Really, Psalm 32 could be read as an interpretive tool for the gospel that we got coming up. If you can imagine the prodigal son, he could write this psalm after he's had a changed heart and he finds himself in the safety of God's house once he returned from his stupid journey, his moment of dumbness, whatever you want to call it. But once you read Psalm 32, you can see these four points. Uh, first, that there is a harm in unconfessed or unrepented sin. I want to go ahead and read the first couple verses of this psalm because it'll make more sense later. Verse 1, Happy are those whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Happy are those to whom the Lord imputes no inequity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. While I kept silent, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not hide my inequity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave all my guilt. Therefore, let all who are faithful offer prayer to you. At a time of distress, the rush of mighty waters shall not reach them. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with glad cries of deliverance. So that's verses 1 through 7. I talked about that first point, the harm of unconfessed or unrepented sin. It literally kills you. I have been uh, a person who has backslidden, uh, and man... it's hard. It sucks your life away because you try so very hard to project an image, and it's not you. And so I finally found a pastor here locally to where I could I could go to and just say, Hey, confess your sins to one another that you might be healed. And I did. And you have to be careful who you confess to and know that person loves you deeply and cares for you deeply. But you've got you've to let that out, right? And so does so do your congregation. So does your congregation. They have to... Uh, confess their sin to somebody. I'm not saying that we have to be priests and and we proclaim absolution, but um, hidden sin will kill you. The first couple verses talks about an imputed righteousness. Uh, That is an incredible uh, theological statement. Happy are those to whom the Lord imputes no inequity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Uh, That's two different things, but it's important. We're horrible people, but that does not mean that the Lord imputes sin to us. Instead, in Christ we're covered. That is worth preaching. There is a harm of unconfessed or unrepented sin. Uh, Calling the Lord while he is near is what last week's uh, Old Testament passage said. It can literally kill your spirit. It can kill your church. So be careful with that one because unrepented sin will kill you. It will make you dry up, right? Your body will waste away. Uh, The Lord's hand was heavy upon you. I think it would be well for you as a minister to address that on occasion. Uh, And it's also important that if we confess that uh, a minister or elders or those leaders of the church that would hear confessions, 
treat them as confidential in love with the hope that grace and an imputed righteousness uh, can change the situation. So that's the first point. Second point is obviously to confess your sins. And if you look at verses 3 and 4 and compare those with verse 6 and 7, so 3 and 4 says, When I kept silent, my body wasted away. Day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as in the heat of summer. But look at verse 6 and 7. Therefore let all who are faithful offer prayer to you. At a time of distress, the rushing mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with glad cries. And so you see the difference when you're trying to hide sin or when you confess your sin. In verses 3 and 4 and then verses 6 and 7. Uh, they kind of parallel each other, or perpendicular, really. It's the difference between those who are hiding sin and those who confess sin. When you confess your sin, you experience humility, which is absolutely important in the Christian faith. In fact, I'd say it's, uh, if you're like Augustine, and Augustine thinks that pride is is the major sin of life because from pride springs everything, well, to reverse that is to be humble, right? To be humble in your thoughts, humble in your actions, knowing that without Christ's sacrifice and Christ's forgiveness, we're nothing, which leads to a broken and contrite spirit, which you read about in Psalm 51. The broken and contrite spirit is the moldable clay of God. When we confess our sin and we say, we cannot do this without you, then we realize what verse 6 and 7, the faithful will offer prayer in a time of distress. God is a mighty water, rushing water, that... Uh, he protects against, right? Like, we have our forgiveness in Him. He becomes our hiding place. He preserves us. And we're filled with glad cries of deliverance. So, that's that's a good point. So, first, th- there is a harm in unconfessed and unrepented sin. Second, confess your sin. So, third, then, is a restored relationship. So, verses 1 and 2. Happy are those whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Happy are those to whom the Lord imputes no inequity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Then you go down to verse 5, it says, So then I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not hide my inequity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. So in uh, verse 5, you see this restored relationship. And then in 6 and 7 and 8 and following, you see what happens after you've confessed sin, all right? So unconfessed sin leads to death, if you will, in, the, in your spirit, even in your body. You waste away. But in verse 5, there's a confession. God forgave the guilt of sin. And then we have an honest relationship before God again, which allows for honest, open communication, and it allows for God to work in our life to form and shape us uh, to who we should be. It also allows for worship of the true God. It is hard to worship when you're harboring sin. I know from experience, and I know from seeing people in the church, when you're hiding sin, worship stops. You become like Adam and Eve in the garden. You start trying to hide yourself with with fig leaves. It's hard to have an honest relationship with God when there's sin in your life. And then it also leads to protection, right? So, Uh, You learn a little bit more trust in God, that God will protect you. Even when you fail, God is around. That's when in verse 8 it says, I will instruct you and teach you the way you should go. I will counsel you. Don't be like a horse or a mule without understanding, right? So God says, don't be dumb. Then in verse 10, many are the torments of the wicked, 
but steadfast love surrounds those who trust in the Lord. In forgiveness, or in confession, we receive forgiveness. We can have an honest relationship with God. We can worship freely, and we have the protection of God. And then the fourth point, so I've got harm of unconfessed and repented sin, first point. Second, confessing of sin. Third, that leads to a restored relationship. And fourth, there's an assurance from God. One of my favorite hymns is His Eyes on the Sparrow. And I absolutely love verses 8 through 11. It says, I will instruct you and teach you the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. The reason I love the passage is because, or the verse is because it shows that God doesn't just simply declare us, you know, righteous or not guilty, but he keeps an eye on us and he is concerned about our growth as we uh, move in the Christian faith. Seeing his eyes on the sparrow, have somebody do that as a special this week. So that brings us to the epistle passage, which is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 through 21. I said earlier that I think this ties all the passages together. I am so bummed. I am going out of town uh, with my wife this week, uh, but I had to turn down a preaching engagement for this week, but man, I wished I could because I think this passage just sets up preaching so beautifully. I wished I could. So I am going to preach vicariously through every single one of you that are listening. Uh, This could be an interpretive tool with regards to the faithful, faithful brother in the prodigal son story. Uh, The prodigal son, while faithful in many ways, had not yet learned how to see through the eyes of God. He understood the wayward brother in human terms, and he he understood God through human terms, or the Father through human terms. So, uh, Paul brings up, no longer regard anyone from a human point of view. So, we have this uh, tension between human and divine points of view. We tend to look down upon, um, if we're the faithful brother, uh, because we think, why are they so awful and we're so good? Why can't they be more like us? The faithful brother was viewing things through the eyes of the Pharisees, viewing things through the eyes of human achievement. Even so, it's the Pharisees viewed Christ through a human point of view. How could Christ say that he's God or that he could forgive sins or so on and so forth? We simply um, become like the Pharisees when we look out in the world. Sometimes we think of Christ from a human point of view in the sense of maybe we don't believe him that he can actually forgive our sins, that he has the power to do so, or this simple story can change our lives. We find ourselves like the faithful brother. We want to work hard for our salvation, and it's very difficult for us to understand God can just forgive someone. And so we see Christ maybe as a fairy tale in some sense. We see Christ as someone who's preaching this easy gospel, but it's the truth that Christ is the Son of God, that he's risen from the dead, and that in that he gives us life and freedom. We no longer see Christ from a human point of view. We no longer see our brothers and sisters from a human point of view, but we're supposed to look through the divine lenses. And so the first point then is, what does it mean to look at something through a human point of view or divine point of view? The second thing would be, what has changed, right? What has changed? Why is it now that we can look through divine lenses? And it's because everything has become new. If you take the Old Testament passage, the Israelites are new. They're no longer people who were enslaved by the Egyptians. They're no longer people who are wandering through the desert. But now they're people who have a purpose, who know that God's promises are true, and they're about to enter in the promised land and become a great nation. They think of themselves as new people, 
not as slaves, not as wanderers, but overcomers and conquerors in God. That's a new way of looking at things. You too, even though you're a sinful person or you've had a bad past, God has changed you into a new person. The psalmist had become new. He was a sinner. She was a sinner. And now they've looked into the eyes of God. They've received the love of God. They've been redeemed. And now they proclaim the goodness of God. They've become new. We too can become new. And look at the prodigal son. He was once an awful person and he went out and screwed up. But then he repented and he's come back to the father. He has become a new person with a broken heart and a contrite spirit. They've become new. We have become new. You can't sit in a pew and receive the grace of Christ without being transformed. As much as it pains you to admit it, you were an awful person too. Probably still are in many ways, but God has promised to redeem your heart and redeem your life and make you into a new person. We have all become new. It looks like um, new purposes, new visions, new love. When I say new purposes, I mean we no longer live for ourselves. We no longer work for just our family. Instead, we understand ourselves as tools in the hands of God. We have a new purpose. We have new visions. It's no longer about what we can do here on this earth or what we can do to advance in earthly terms, but instead we have a vision of the love of God and what He can do with our life and how then we can change the world because now we're tools of God in the transformation of the world. And we also have a new love. That was the hardest thing for the faithful brother. How could he love this brother of his who went and squandered everything? How could he love his father who treated him unjustly? But if we repent and we're not like the Pharisees, we can see the beauty of God being able to forgive even the most wayward person and treat them just like he does us. And when we're not blind to ourselves and we have the right lenses on our eyes, we can see we weren't as special as we thought we were. So it's a new purpose. It's a new vision. It's a new love. Behold, all things are new. And then we become ambassadors of reconciliation, right? If we have received the love of God, if we have been transformed, how can this message of the gospel of Jesus Christ be in our hearts not be worth telling? How can we not become tools of reconciliation or ambassadors of reconciliation if what we've received is true, if we've experienced it, experienced it ourselves? Our only response then is to preach the newness of the gospel. The psalmist, the Israelites, the prodigal son, the faithful son, are all uh, game, if you will. Uh, they're all ready for transformation, and they can all be redeemed in Jesus Christ. Everything is possible because of the Lord Jesus Christ has made the sacrifice to make us new. It's worth telling. It's worth spreading. It's worth living. It's worth believing. And that leads us then to the gospel passage. This is one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture. Uh, now, while this isn't an art podcast, I will say years ago, a Bible college professor showed on a projector a painting from Rembrandt called The Return of the Prodigal Son. And I can no longer read this passage without thinking of that painting. In that painting, the son is on his knees with his head in the chest of the father who is reaching over him as in a posture of protection and compassion. And it's the type of compassion that you can only know if you've been a parent of a wandering child who has broken 
his own heart or her own heart and broken your heart as well. It's certainly a, a, a face of compassion. You see also in this painting the tattered clothing of the boy. On the sole of his left foot he has no shoe, and on the right foot the sole is tattered and tearing away. You see the father and his attendant dressed in this rich red flowing robe. And while the painting is dark, there's light as if from a doorway that highlights the father and the son, as if to say, this is a moment between me and my beloved. You guys can look and you can think whatever you want, but this is my kid, and this is most certainly a good day for me and for him. It was for me a vision of how we settle for rags and God has riches to share and is ever willing to embrace us in a compassionate embrace. Most everyone has preached this text um, before, so I don't want to go into great detail, but maybe take a little venture out into your preaching uh, and, and maybe preach this from a different angle than you normally would. You might want to highlight the different perspectives from each character. The classic view of this text is the point of view from the prodigal son. He's pompous. He wants his dad's money. He's going to go out and he's going to make it rich and he's going to be successful all by himself. But again, he but he finds himself humbled. He finds himself in a state of repentance and he runs back to the father's house. That's how it's normally preached and you can preach that as well. But there's also the view from the father. It's a father who's wanting to be good to his children. One is overtly stupid and sinful, which is the prodigal, but one is stupid and prideful, and you can decide which is better or worse. But how does the father view each child? How does he minister and share compassion to both children, right? That's in the story, so don't discount it. He treats the prodigal son a different way than he treats the, the quote-unquote faithful son. And then there's the view that most of us need to hear, that we... We, the one sitting in the pews, the one preaching the word this week, is the prideful brother. We view people from a view, human point of view and that they're basically useless. They confirm it through their actions. And then oftentimes, instead of praising God for God's marvelous love and grace, we, think, we say things like, well, the squeaky wheel gets the oil. Or everyone comes to Jesus when they're in trouble. We unknowingly hold people in contempt in our minds and we just wait for them to screw up again so that we can say, Aha! Told you so. A leopard can't change its spots. They've never been any good. Another thing to note at this passage, which I think needs to be noted, and I haven't read it too much in, in many commentaries. I haven't heard it in many sermons. But that's okay. I mean, keep in mind that like over 2,000 years, most things have already been discussed, and those that haven't are usually heretical. But I would like to highlight... So the elder son gets angry, right? Uh, he says, look, your son has done awful things. I've been here. I've worked like a slave. I've never disobeyed your commandments. You've never even given me a party like this, but this guy who runs off with prostitutes and crazy living, you kill the fatted calf for him. And the father replies, you're always with me. Everything that I have is yours. We had to celebrate and rejoice because his brothers of yours, the brother of yours was dead. But it's come back to life. He was lost, but now he's found. Too often, way too often, I hear Christians talk about being a disciple of Christ as something that is so hard and difficult, and I feel so sorry for him. And it's like, really? Really? I mean, I liken it to my children who have absolutely everything they want. And and they have us as parents. My wife and I, we're good to, to these kids. 
but there seems like there's always a search for more. And maybe sometimes humility and gratitude are called for, right? So some of my children think that our house is just horrible, but there's church kids that have grown up without moms or dads, or they they live in a in an environment where everybody's addicted to some type of drug or substance, and they would give their their left arm to be able to live with us, and our kids are unhappy. There's a sense in which we get angry because there are some people who go out and they live loose, right? They find uh, women and men in relationships. They get to enjoy parties, and they they cheat people to get uh, a little bit of gain in the world. But in the end, they find themselves in a pigsty, and there's nothing else they'd rather do than to get elevated a little bit. So really, when we think about it, is that an enviable, enviable position? I mean, like, would you rather, like live immorally would you rather be in a state of being lost than to being a child of god we literally have the kingdom of god and god's love surrounding us every day how can we not be thankful people so i'd say challenge your congregation this week to think oh yeah sure you've been a christian you've had to tithe every once in a while you've had to turn the other cheek but man the alternative is much much worse so don't and don't think that you're getting the short end of the deal. Instead, you've been surrounded by the blessings and the comforts of the church and of the love of God and the grace of God in your life every single day. Be thankful for it and invite others to this kingdom so they don't have to live in such a way that they're always constantly running after those things that don't satisfy. Instead, rest in God. Rest in the church. Be thankful for, for what we have. So that's all I got for you today. I really intended this to be about an 18-minute podcast. Did not happen. So may the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you, turn his face towards you, and be gracious unto you as you preach and proclaim the message of the gospel this day to your church and to everyone that you come in contact with. Amen. We'll see you next week.